It's a Valentine's Day edition of the Gills Talk podcast today, and we are going to keep your love of sharks going with this interview with Gills Club scientist, Dr. Christine Dungeon. This episode is going to be a little bit of a catch-up. Christine has been with the Gills Club since its inception, and so we have an episode packed of what she has been doing since she has become a science team member, and we didn't even scratch the surface. We'll mention that throughout the interview, and we're going to have to have her back on for a part two to even talk about another part of her job we didn't even get to. But we're going to be answering questions like, can you replace populations of sharks with captive-born animals? We're going to learn more about that through the STAR program that she is working on and seeing how we can breed leopard sharks in aquariums to help rebuild populations that have depleted over the past few years. So keep on listening and you will learn more about the STAR program and as well as her work as the co-vice chair in the Oceana region of the shark specialist group for the IUCN. So a big episode coming at you talking about sharks, common names, why scientific names are important, and as well as keeping a work-life balance as a woman and how we can balance being a mom but still being a scientist as well. This is a great episode. I hope you enjoy the interview. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Gills Talk podcast. Today, we have Gills Club scientist, Dr. Christine Dungeon, all the way from Australia. So we have now had a few scientists from Australia on this season. So I'm pretty excited that we're able to catch up with our science team from across the world. So welcome, and thank you for coming on today. Thanks, Kristen. Great to be here. Yes, I'm very happy to have you. So I know, oh goodness, you were featured many, many years ago on um, the Gills Club page. So I would love to just hear an update of what you've you've been doing over in Australia. I know you've been working with some epaulette sharks. I also was reading up on your past feature working with some six gills as well or seven gills. So I'm really excited to hear what you've been up to. Yes, I think I had sort of was featured pretty early on in the Gills Club and I recall being sent some of those first T-shirts and there were a picture of myself and and my daughter, who was probably about three at the time. Mm -hmm. Um, So I'm thinking that's about 10 years ago. Uh, And, yeah, a fair bit's happened since then. So um, (laughs) would you like me to just start in chronological order? (laughs) See, See where we get to. Sure, I love it. I really only started working on sharks when I undertook my PhD. So prior to that, I'd been up at James Cook University, which um, many people probably know is a bit of a shark hub of research in Australia. Um, But that happened after I left, unfortunately. And so at that time, I I did some work. I focused more on um, molecular ecology and behavioral ecology, particularly reef fish and um, corals. And uh, the first animal I ever tagged was actually a carpet python so that was that was pretty fun we had to learn how to catch snakes and touch little spools and follow them around um, on campus and in the bush and um, yeah so but I was interested in sharks and there wasn't a lot of that happening there Uh, so I was very fortunate to obtain a PhD program in Brisbane which is where I'm still based so this is southern Queensland Um, in Australia and uh, focused on leopard sharks. So these are, um, we call them leopard sharks, you call them zebra sharks. And so I'll take a moment to explain what they are. Um, So in America, on the West Coast, in California and Mexico, there's there's an animal you guys know as a leopard shark and it's a little dogfish. On this side of the Pacific and through the Indian Ocean, we have uh, a species we also call leopard shark, but we're sort of calling now an Indo-Pacific leopard shark, and it's actually a carpet shark. So it's a Stegostoma tigranum. The name changed a few years ago, um, and the um, the species. So it's its own species in the family. So it has no close relatives. 
um, but it's part of the order Erectiloba forms, which is the carpet shark order. And so that includes um, other animals that I've been fortunate to work on as well, which are uh, whale sharks and epaulette sharks, as well as wobbegongs, which are, are pretty common oh, around so cool. here. Wobbegongs, yeah, they're yes. awesome. Thing. Um, <laughs> lurking, lurking ambush predators, yeah. So uh, the common name issue with the leopard shark, zebra shark thing is because obviously it's tricky when you've got multiple species with the same common name, but the zebra bit only refers to when they first hatch. So they're egg layers and they, um, when they hatch out, there are these teeny tiny little stripy things, but they lose the stripes very quickly. So we, it's incredibly rare to see a stripy version of, a, of our leopard shark. So mm. what we see in the wild are larger, generally about two metres long um, spotty sharks. So where they're found in the wild, they tend to be called a leopard shark. They do have other common names, which I quite like. So in Thailand, they're called Chalam Gal, which means starry mm. shark, which I think is pretty cute. Yeah. Um, and in Indonesia, they're called... Um, Hubilambing, which means star fruit shark. So there's, um, yeah. And the really cool thing about those common names, and I'll I'll talk about this in a bit, is one of the research programs involved with this species, um, which is a really exciting um, conservation initiative. And the acronym for that is STAR. So it really works having a starry shark and a star fruit shark to be part of the STAR project. So Let's talk about the common names because I it's always a joke among science about common names for animals. And especially I think it's so interesting that, you know, we have our leopard shark here within the U.S. and you have your leopard shark within Australia. But, you know, here in the U.S., you said it's it's species of dogfish. And then over there, it's that carpet shark. But then you also have the same species, but then you also have them being named by like different types of like star things. <laughs> so I just I find it just so interesting to me and it is it's something that I always see in school programs when I am teaching youth they're like oh, I saw a sand shark I was like really that's like such a mysterious shark because there's not a sand shark what do you mean you know <laughs> so um it's always just an interesting topic that I always love to be brought up because it's why I always love to teach kids what scientific names are of animals because one they're just always so fun to say and then two because you have this discrepancy depending on where you are throughout the world and for us even within the U.S. a sand shark here in Massachusetts is usually a spiny dogfish but the further south you go it's usually a sandbar shark or a sand tiger so you never know yeah yeah and they're all entirely different animals aren't they so Mm -hmm. it becomes really really complicated I have to say generally I'm pretty bad with common names and I think as a scientist we tend to just focus in on on the scientific names because it's Mm -hmm. so much easier the issue I mean with the leopard shark challenge they don't the American Mm -hmm. species and Indo-Pacific species don't actually co-occur so the Mm -hmm. only place it becomes a problem is in aquaria because it's in an aquarium where you will find those animals together. And to kind of get around that, because the the species, the genus name is Stegostoma, so to get around that, often the aquarium people and and also researchers call them stegs. So we we just kind of put them, put them out that way. And yeah, nothing else is a Stegostoma. So we can, um, we can, you know, clarify that there, but I mean, a common name is exactly, you know, that that's what it, what it is. It's what is it called commonly where you occur, and mm-hmm. um, and it is important to have some idea of what people do refer to these animals as commonly, because that is, you know, when you're trying to communicate with the public, that's what yeah. most people know, and it it then becomes pretty complicated. If I if I talk to someone on the beach, or if I go scuba diving here, or um. Brisbane, where we have uh, a lot of leopard sharks, and I say anything about stegostoma, they just look at me with a blank face. Right. So, um, yeah. <laughs> so there's um, even some of our more common or well-known scientific names, for example, can change. So um, one of the projects that I've, I've worked on for several years here 
um, in Australia particularly is uh, what we call Project Manta. So this is about the manta rays of, of Australian mm. um, waters. And of course, manta, manta rays, the genus used to be called manta, which made it really easy to yeah. identify those, you know, largest of the devil rays. But the genus changed. So um, the taxonomists got to it again and discovered that manta itself was not a true genus. It's actually nestled within the bigger devil ray um, family. And so a few years ago, the genus manta was dropped and they're now mobular. So mm-hmm. um, so even there, we, we still refer to them commonly as mantas and people know what we're talking about. But the scientific name, the scientific name changes more rapidly than I think people know as well because we um you know we, we're constantly revisiting what these animals are and in the past so for, for stegostoma um it's now stegostoma tigranum which only changed a few years ago it used to be stegostoma fasciatum it used to be stegostoma yeah. varium and and you know we look through this, and it's only one species, so it's actually pretty easy to follow. But of course, you had people describing these animals from different parts of the world where they saw them pre-internet. So you know you didn't know that you know Bob over there was describing the same animal at the same time as you, um, and also they were describing different life stages. So often you know with with um, it's not so difficult with elasmobranchs but particularly with reef fish where you have massive changes between juveniles and adult forms you know often people didn't know that they were describing the same thing and so it took quite a while to figure out how these things change over time leopard sharks are probably one of have one of the biggest changes in body patterns between juvenile and adult forms so it's mm-hmm. quite possible that people had no idea they were looking at the same animal whether it was a, a small one or a big one. So, mm-hmm. yeah, the nomenclature, you know, how we call these things is complicated, but it is really important to get your head around. And uh, I think probably one of the first things to um, think about with a common name is where am I? You know, mm-hmm. if I'm standing on, you know, the beach of Los Angeles and I'm looking out at a leopard shark, I've got a pretty good idea of what animal it should be. If I'm standing in an aquarium anywhere around the world, it could be anything. <laughs> so you just need to take a moment to to put yourself in place. I think it's hard to keep up with. It really is, but I think that's one of the one of the great parts of science. You know, we're always learning. We're always going back and looking at what things have been already, you know, written out, quote unquote, set in stone, but not really because we know that things can easily change. So yeah, it's always something you're always learning. Even with science, even with scientific names, so I'd be interested though to hear about the star program that you mentioned with this lovely leopard shark. Yeah, for sure. So, um, so star program is something that's been developing over the last few years. It's an idea that came probably started about eight years ago, and essentially around that time, I was doing a. IUCN red list assessments for leopard sharks. And one of the things that we really discovered was that the populations are largely depleted through many of the locations that they should be. And in particular, as as, uh, talking with a colleague of mine that I've done a fair bit of work with the walking sharks or the hemicillium, um, Dr. Mark Erdman from Conservation International, Asia Pacific, and Mark and um, Dr. Jerry Allen, who's a eminent um, reef fish taxonomist, have, have done incredible numbers of surveys throughout eastern Indonesia, Papua New Guinea for biodiversity. And so it, when I asked them about leopard shark numbers, and again, it sort of highlighted the fact that these animals should be there and they're not. But interestingly, they were. So if you go back a decade, uh, they were around. And and that was the story that was popping up um, in lots of places. So I'd go and speak with dive shops in Thailand and um, particularly in the Gulf of Thailand where these animals had disappeared. And, and if I spoke with anybody who sort of knew, they didn't know anything about the animals. But if I go and speak with someone who'd been there for a decade and ask, okay, tell me what happened in the past, it became evident that, you know, the animals were there. This is their habitat. This is where they should be. And even though there's a 
have been numerous conservation initiatives put in place, they haven't recovered. And, and one of those places in particular is Raja Ampat in eastern Indonesia. It's the West Papuan province. And that was the first site of a shark and ray sanctuary in Asia. And it's also really extensive marine protected area. There's lots of research there on manta rays and, and whale sharks in that region, the um, Raja Ampat epaulette shark as well. And But the leopards haven't recovered. And so... Mm-hmm. The flip side of that was that they do really well in aquariums. So you see them um, in aquariums all around the world. They're egg layers. Um, so the eggs are pretty hardy in aquaria as well. Um, and so it was the idea was like, well, can you replenish wild populations with captive-born animals? And this is called ex situ breeding program. And it's been done quite a lot for land animals. So really sort of, um, I guess, better known examples of that are the Californian condor, mm-hmm. which was almost, you know, extinct, and that was brought back through ex situ breeding. Um, there's Przewalski horses, which were in the Mongolian steppes that also uh, almost uh, disappeared. And so in lots and lots of different programs like this, um, on land where in particular zoos have a a large uh, input into that, but very little has been done in that space in the marine environment. A bit more in freshwater, so you do have a fair bit of restocking of things like trout or, you know, um, fish that people like to fish. Recreational fishing is always quite a powerful, you know, group. But, yeah, in the marine environment, really not very much done and and nothing sort of formally done with elasmobranchs. So this seemed like a good idea of a, a way of trying to understand is this kind of ex situ breeding program possible and where, you know, where could we do it, how could we do it, how could it come together? And so a few years ago, so pre-COVID, there was interest a meeting was held actually at Georgia Aquarium. So the idea had sort of been floating around for a while and there was more interest and, uh, from from also people in the state. So this meeting was sponsored by Georgia Aquarium and, and Seattle Aquarium has been a big player too, Virginia Aquarium at the time, um, Conservation International, probably still like the world's most published um, researcher on this species, so for working in the wild. So I was invited to bring my perspective on on what happens with the animals in the wild too. Um, and so essentially this con- you know conglomerate came together and, and came up with this uh, plan, which was a set, can we do an ex situ breeding program for this species and where would we do it? Um, so the proposed site was Raja Ampat in um, West Papua province and um, this it doesn't make sense to release animals into a site if they're just going to get fished. So it's really important that yeah. there's a, a good, strong network of marine protected areas and enforcement for that. And um, and so this plan started coming together at that time. And I suppose the advantage of COVID to some extent is that because we we're all stuck at home, we could have regular meetings to really bring together a solid plan of action and in particular, working under this one plan initiative for the IUCN Shark Specialist Group, which is um, really important to be, uh, you know, sort of following that one plan guidelines put out by IUCN for ex situ breeding programs. My role in this has largely been together with um, Dr. Lisa Hoops from Georgia Aquarium. Mm-hmm. We've been running the um, research working group and one of the first things that we needed to do was identify potential breeders in aquarium and so this was based on research that I had done as part of my PhD where we examined population genetic structure of the species and so we found that there were two major um, populations globally and the Raja Ampat population fits within the eastern one and the closest location to that that has the same uh, sort of genetic signature 
is actually far north Queensland mm. in, in Australia. And that's also where a lot of leopard sharks in captivity originate from. So oh. this meant we could screen, yeah, there's a, a fishery, um, Cairns Marine, who uh, has supplied a fair bit of the, the global um, captive population. And, and so we're able to screen, essentially put a call out to all the aquariums around the world, including the, several in the States, but through Asia, Australia, Europe, um, and said, if you've got animals that are breeding or you'd like to be breeding animals for this project, please send us our samples, blood samples of your animals, and we'll essentially do a genetic screening. So we needed to screen, do they come from the right genetic population for this program um, was number one. And then number two was if they're in an aquarium with other animals or there's other potential breeders, are they too genetically related to yeah. be a breeding pair? So we were sort of essentially doing, you know, much like, you know. Um, you know 23 and me. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> match your match your shark, find your find your breeding pair, find your mate, which is all um, you know, so so it yeah, it was funny to go, oh you you can mate with you, but no, you're too closely related. Yeah, that's not a good idea. Um and and so that's been a lot of what we we were doing. And so we have identified um, the first few aquariums that were able to contribute breeders. So these include Sea Life Sydney in Australia and uh, Shark Reef in Las Vegas. And oh. so the really exciting thing is that the this year the first eggs were shipped. So that's another thing. That because they're egg layers, we can ship them at the egg stage rather than the whole animal having been mm -hmm. hatched stage. So that logistically makes it a bit easier um you know for getting the program up and running so the first eggs were shipped we've had three hatchlings uh three animals hatch out in Raja Ampat uh, so there's two eco resorts that are supporting the program and they've made hatcheries on site and they've got um grow out pens on site and there's um local West Papuan staff members that are there who we, we have we call the shark nannies they're the ones that are, have been trained to look after um the juveniles with the aquarists they're amazing they've they know how to deal with these aquarium systems they're you know being trained in all the research side of things an awesome team and so the the resorts are papua diving in the north of rajampat and Masuliko resort in the south and it's amazing to have these partners who are supporting the project there. Um, and yeah, the first the first babies have hatched. They've been doing incredibly well. Um, the growth rates are through the roof and they have these beautiful open seawater systems, warm water, eating live food super quickly. And um, then we're aiming to release the first ones in January, February, and then there'll be an extensive sort of monitoring in that region with acoustic telemetry, eDNA, bravs, all, all sorts of things. So it's um yeah, it's a and the project is so it's obviously a lot of input from the yeah. from the bigger group, but um it's very much a run in Indonesia by Indonesians. And I just want to give a shout out to Nesha Achida, who's our project manage, manager there and she's been extraordinary she works with thrive conservation and um yeah the amount of work she's put into getting this project up and running is just amazing um so many moving parts uh so you know the success of this you know she she really owns that yeah so we're right on the precipice of this first major step um which yeah. is which is really really exciting uh, First off, I want to be a shark nanny. That sounds so much fun. <laughs> <laughs> wow. There's so many moving parts to this. I wrote down a lot of notes. So <laughs> I, I think first off, what an incredible thing to hear that there is people literally from around the world coming together to help a shark population in one area. Like you, you don't get that with like anything else. 
you know, pe people are usually like, oh, okay. Like that's in one part of the world. I probably will never touch or see in my life, like out of sight, out of mind, not my problem. But I think that is the one amazing thing about the science community and what I've just heard about with sharks in general. And I'm sure it's like this with anyone else too, but the shark community like it is extensive. It is vast. And I mean, to hear there's literally people from all over the world that is helping for this is just so interesting and so cool. And I mean, I know it's only three so, so far, but I mean, I hope to have to hear many more that will happen. And I mean, first off, also my next question about this, how does one ship a shark egg? <laughs> Well, um, I mean, these guys are, are extraordinary at shipping all sorts of things. So, I mean, the aquarium yeah. industry is, the, yeah. you know, this is this is one of the things of partnering with the aquarium industry is that it's, you know, they have a huge number of skills when it comes to these sorts of things. So, and, and also, you know, aquariums are, are super keen to have an active role in, in conservation and mm -hmm. research um, and move away from, you know, that entertainment uh, I guess vibe that they yeah. they tend to have. There's, I think, there's been quite a lot of educational side of things as mm -hmm. well happening, but but certainly there's really a, a great desire and interest in in that conservation and research space. And and you know the aquariums have been amazing. They've been so keen to be involved in this project. But yeah, with that comes you know a huge number of um, of skills and expertise, including you know yeah. setting up aquarium systems like so like all the I I don't know anything about that so I'm not even going to pretend to, to <laughs> like know. I, I, I barely I barely keep my fish tank functioning at home and yeah. that's not salt water and also with shipping so yeah shipping's a shipping's a massive one but the aquarium industry do do this like so they will ship you know whole animals around yeah um yeah mature animals not just not just juveniles so the, I guess the the really important thing is um you know, it's maintaining water quality. It always comes down to water quality. So having, making sure that there's enough seawater per egg, making sure that, that the water is really well oxygenated, temperature as well. So you don't want the, the temperature dropping too much. So um, often in, in planes, the temperature will drop because cargo holds are often, you know, you know, they might be refrigerated in, in certain parts. So um, but but essentially they they'll get shipped in a in a foam esky box with um you know the the bits and pieces that are required. The challenging bit really is to make sure that this process is smooth because they need mm -hmm. to get to they need to get to Jakarta. Um, we also are partnering with the Jakarta Aquarium, so that's the first place they go to, and and they do need to um, get sort of cleared through customs before then being yeah. shipped across and um, there we have had uh there have been a couple more shipments of eggs that have now made it to raja and we expect that there will be mortalities of the eggs and and also of some of the juveniles because that's what happens in the wild yeah. i mean a, a individual leopard shark will lay 80 eggs in a year and there's certainly not 80 new animals being recruited to a population every year so there's yeah. there will there will always be some level of mortality and whether that's from you know, stresses of shipping or uh, I think more of a natural mortality as well. So, um, yeah, but they, they're, they're really, it's it's been amazing to work with uh, aquariums for that because, um, yeah, if, if, you you know, one of us just sort of went, oh, I'm just going to ship some eggs across the yeah. world and make that happen. Uh, no, <laughs> not possible. No, no. Can you imagine being the customs agent that has to clear that box being like what is <laughs> oh my goodness I just couldn't imagine being in their shoes but you also are talking about how um you know this project originally started because you were working with the IUCN on this species so are you strictly just working with them on the leopard shark do you input on other species as well Oh, yeah. So at that time, I was a, a member of the ICN shark specialist group in Oceania, and um, we were doing a lot of work in the space of assessments. So that was the, you know, the status reports where, where you see when people say something is critically endangered or threatened, that tends to be an IUCN risk assessment. And those 
I think the the previous decade there was a huge amount of work to essentially assess every Chondrichthyan species, um, and each region was was working on theirs. But uh, and there are globally um, distributed species. So I I was involved in uh, the assessments for several different species at that time. Um, last year, I think the last couple of years have been a bit of a blur. It's hard to put hard to put um, times and dates on them. <laughs> um, current currently, I've uh, taken on a role as the co-vice chair for the Oceania region for the Aeacian Shark Specialist Group. So I do this along with um, Dr. Al Harry, who's a fisheries scientist in Western Australia, and the we've kind of um, moved away from the assessment stage because that's largely been done. There's always new assessments that need to be done. Assessments need to be redone every 10 years or so. Um, and, we, and we're often actually describing new species. So that's, you know, anytime something pops up that we need to do that again. But what the generally with the IUCN um, shark specialist group, it, it's it's about moving away from doing assessments to active conservation. And, and so the questions around that are, well, what, what does this actually mean? What do we, what do we do now? How do we go about it? So this star project is, is under a bigger umbrella called ReShark. And so the, the ReShark idea is that star is a model system. It's the first one and we'll move towards doing this for leopard sharks elsewhere, so in other parts of their distribution, so the Western population, for example, but also interest in other species, what are the next species that would be targeted. Um, so that's one way of active conservation, but of course that's just one tool in the toolbox. And there's a, a big effort within the IUCN shark specialist group at the moment, lots of interest in what are known as important shark and ray areas. So there's a fair bit of work in that space. Um, my role more specifically is a sort of facilitating our region. So that includes Australia, New Zealand and the Pacific Islands. And we're currently working on the global report. So this is where essentially we're, we're getting a snapshot of the status of chondrichthians across the globe. And each shark specialist group is contributing from their region. And it's going to be a massive document. Um, it was... Yeah. First published, <laughs> I think, 2005. So Sarah Ooh. Fowler led that. And the amount of work that's been done since then to now is, is enormous. So it's really, but it also then highlights where are the major gaps? You know, there's a, there's a huge amount of work that's come out of the States. It's come out of Australia in some places in particular. But, you know, but we're working on Micronesia, for example. Like there's still major, major gaps in in many parts of the world. Um, so it's it'll be really interesting to have this all in one really incredibly useful document um, that synthesizes, you know, what's going on globally. Uh, I'll be I'll put a shout out to the um the head of the, I don't know if you've interviewed her yet, but the head of the IUCN um shark specialist group is uh Rima Jabato. And nice. she's incredible. So she took over this role um, a couple of years ago. And yeah, she's really been pushing, pushing the shark specialist group through this um active conservation action stage. And uh yes, I, I highly recommend you talk with her. She'd be yeah. a wonderful guest. Yeah. Man, I that is sounds like such a huge undertaking. I mean, I don't know how you would even begin to keep that organized and balanced and I'm sure there's committees and things like that that have like their own proper thing but I'm I'm, I'm excited for that to come out is that something that's coming out in 2023 or do we have a few years yet until all that's compiled I think it might be more 2024 yeah okay <laughs> um there was a there was a meeting uh sort of tagged on to the Sharks International Conference in Valencia this year that really progressed that work but it is um there's a there's another uh person working with Rima Alex Murata who's um who, who is doing the lion's share of keeping the organization of you know facilitating all of this and um it's really it yeah it's, it is a massive collaboration but there are I think there's quite clear roles throughout it and and you know again it comes just down to having really good communication 
pathways and structure around you know how how do we proceed with this so um they're they're doing an amazing job keeping us in check we have to try and keep you know the next our members in check so we um but i i think it it'll it'll come together but it is a you know one of these examples of where a huge number of people contribute to a, you know a single document so we all have a you know our small part to play Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, with all the different species that we've been talking about, I know when I ask scientists this, they always get mad at me, but do you have a favorite shark to be able to look at? I know there's so many, but I know. <laughs> so hard. So hard. Um, oh, look, I'm, I've been working with leopard sharks for so long. I would say I'm super fond of them. Yes, they would probably be my favorite. I mean, as far as if you look at babies, they are the cutest things. Um, the adults are, are just lovely to see. I I think things that I've 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 had the opportunity to spend time with in the wild, which are which really are my favorites. So um, I'll I'll list them all if you don't mind. Oh, please do. <laughs> so please I've, do. I've got I I as I mentioned, I've been working with Project Manta for several years, and I've had a few students um working on those projects and. Uh, mantas are just amazing so as far as interactive animals uh, you know the opportunity to sit on a cleaning station and just have these animals circle around and you do feel like they're looking at you they're checking you out we we had a, a series of photos that my students used to call Dr Dudgeon ignoring manta rays because we'd go down and be doing this work and I'd be busy measuring stuff and counting fish and and doing all the sort of background work while students are focused on the manta rays so they'd have these photos of me with a manta over my head looking the other direction or um so maybe comes across like I don't like manta rays as much as I do but I, I really am very fond there's of important work to be done we can see manta rays later <laughs> yeah, exactly there's you'll get back to them um other favorites uh wedge fish we were super fortunate in Australia that we actually have quite uh, good populations of these still. I mean, they're highly endangered throughout most of their distribution. And these guys, they just look like spaceships underwater. They're just beautiful. I saw one the other day. It was two and a half meters, massive, massive dorsal fin. Um, you know, they're 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 super cool to see, and they kind of you know look at you sideways, going, "What are you? What? Why are you here? Why are you in my space?" You know, they they have they have this sort of attitude. Um, and then I, I have to say epaulette sharks or the walking sharks. Yeah, they're just, cool. they're, they're awesome. And, um, you know, they're quite fun to work on because you just walk around in ankle deep water with a spotlight um, at night time to find them. And then, you know, and they're, yeah, again, heaps of attitude, lots of fun to watch. And um, and also where where we work on them, there's a resort so it's nice to take people like they're, they're they're a good entry shark if you will like you can take people out to yeah you know get to see one of these up close and just be like wow that's a shark that that's crazy it's so small and cute and snorty and I didn't know they were <laughs> like that so yeah there's uh there lots of like but I think all of them I, I I would say I particularly have a soft spot for the sort of smaller obscure species. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I I tend to focus a little bit on those, which um which I really enjoy. Yes, I think you know the smaller sharks. I mean, obviously, I work in an or an organization that works with with white sharks. I'm a little biased, but I mean, the smaller sharks they're so cool, and I think they they definitely need their their spotlight as well. So especially during like Shark Week and you know Shark Fest, you know it's always like tigers and bulls and white sharks, and I was like, but epaulets are so cool, and like all these little ones too, and there's a lot of cool work being done with them. So yeah. I totally agree. They definitely need their spotlight. But to wrap up today, I always ask scientists as well, what is advice that you would give to yourself? So I know you didn't start in the shark realm. That was towards your your PhD. So it doesn't have to be exactly towards sharks, but just um, advice to yourself when you were younger, just coming up in this field, just in science, really in general. I think my pathway of not starting in the shark world is well, it's actually, for one, it's quite typical of people of my generation. So if you go back <laughs> 20 years, um, you know, we didn't even have a shark society in Australia. Then you had the AES. Wow. We, didn't, we we started it. 
my generation of students started it. So prior to that, there were, uh, you know, a handful of um, shark researchers, but they were not dedicated shark researchers. They were, you know, sort of fisheries officers or worked for the national government organization, research organizations that were, you know, working on many things. And sharks was sort of one of the bits and pieces. It didn't didn't feel unusual for me. And, and in fact, I, I think it's put me in good stead because I'm diverse. I have my particular interest passion. So I do a lot of work with genetics and I'm interested mm -hmm. in uh, you know, I, I love evolutionary questions as well as applied conservation. And so I'll, I'll come at, you know, these different types of research questions, you know, for, for very different reasons. I think being diverse and flexible is the reason I'm still here because I pretty much work on most things. Um, and uh, I haven't even told you my, one of my main jobs has nothing to do with Elasma Franks at the moment. So I do, I, <laughs> We're going to have know, to do a part I, two. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I, I'll, I wouldn't say I'm a jack of all trades master of none. I do have some sort of specialties, but I think having a, a broad brushstroke is important to put things into context. And we, we're working in a world now where, you know, we, we're not in our own little bubbles, you know, from a research perspective. We want to tie in what we're doing with everything else so we want to sort of see that bigger picture and and how do we connect with other researchers how do we how do we you know bring all of this together for conservation initiatives so I wouldn't really tell my younger self to do anything differently I, I'm quite happy with my my pathway I think I've um, had a you know a huge fortune in the different things that I've I've been able to do the the people that I've been able to work with um I I mean things that I've learned I suppose is uh pick your people wisely you know we do this this is it's a passion job so you want to you want to reduce the numbers of challenges in your life that you yes that you have to deal with so and and you know Work, work with people, find you, find people that you enjoy working with and, and you'll want to work with them for, for the rest of your life. And I'm super fortunate that I, I went through as a PhD student at the same time with just some incredible scientists that um, are still in this field that are, that are essentially my, my broader crew. And as I mentioned, you know, we started the um, Australian, uh, the Oceania Chondrichthian Society together. We, we built shark research here and, you know, and and I feel yeah extremely fortunate to to have worked to and to keep working with with the, with these people and um you know Adam Cynthia Charlie uh, could list heaps Carly lots and lots and lots of amazing people so one thing I do want to talk about if I may um, oh please it's just <laughs> thank you I had two children during my PhD now um well the first, second one was kind of she was due on the day I was supposed to graduate but oh. meant that I, she came she came a week early so I graduated six months later anyway so I, I counted as having <laughs> I was pregnant at least during with her during my PhD I come from a tradition of this my supervisor had children during her PhD her supervisor had children during her PhD and one of my PhD students she had a child during her PhD so you know it's a tradition that I I quite love and will hopefully can see that continuing but um kids and being a, a female scientist uh it, it's it's a it's a challenge and um you know often people ask me oh is there a best time to have kids and I say no there's not you know because your life who knows what how those bits and pieces come together right but it is challenging it's it it, it is difficult to maintain if I would say you sort of take your foot off the academic pedal a little bit, right? So you, you're focused on the kids when particularly when they're little. And so there's a disadvantage to women compared to men often in that stage if um, there's, you know, not good support, um, particularly if there's not good financial support for someone to, you know, to, to take on the caring role. And I think, you know, mm -hmm. society still is quite imbalanced in that way. And we, we saw this in our Shark Society and Fish Society conference a few years ago that had a panel on women. And it was interesting because we focus a lot on getting young women into science, yes. right? So a lot of like 
And I think we've done pretty well in that. I think particularly in the life sciences, it, it needs, it, it's not finished, but I think we've done pretty well. And and when we looked at the memberships, the, the younger um, undergraduate, there were more women than men. Um, postgraduate, there were more women than men. But it completely flipped at the higher levels, completely mm. flipped. So we had way more men than women in any of the professor um, senior professor type levels like it was it was it was like a cross basically um, of how this flipped and people like oh what happened how do, what's how did we get to this clogged pipeline I stuck my hand up I'm like see that bit there where it flips guess what that's associated with women yeah. having kids because what happens is that you know it, it it makes it difficult for you to maintain a competitive output uh, as far as basically keeping up to the same level of you know re research output as your contemporaries if, if they're not taking a break and you know applying for grants and scholarships and fellowships and all that kind of stuff but I think that the important thing if you're really passionate and this is what I found so my journey has not been straightforward I'm not a ongoing I don't have tenure I, I work off what I call a patchwork quilt of research grants, but I still managed to do it. Like I managed to get the funding. I managed to work on the projects that I'm interested in. Um, I have a wonderfully supportive um, partner um, and the, the kids are very tolerant of me um, disappearing off into the <laughs> field and, and doing these things. But but I think if you look at the, I, I tend to find if you if you actually look at the the female scientists in our field, we're pretty entrepreneurial. We're 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 pretty creative with how we manage to do things. We, for the most part, I'd say very few of us have taken the sort of standard pathway, but you know we still manage to be here and and to do things. And I I think it's and I've been super fortunate that not not really in. A couple of people, women in the shark world that I've, you know, had been able to work with, like one of my PhD advisors, um, Jenny Ovenden, who retired last year, um, who's been extraordinarily amazing influence. But I've also had other women senior scientists that I've worked under um, in different projects. And I, I think having women in senior roles is just fantastic because it also changes the I would say that the culture of the society is a lot more support mm. for the fact that, you know, you do need to spend some time with your kids. You do need to sleep. You do need to actually have a good balance. You do need to make mm -hmm. sure that everything that that you that you, you know, prioritize home life as well as work life. And, and you know, do you need 500 papers or can you can you have a few less? And I, I think that yeah. It's I I see a I see a shift in the culture and I think it's a shift it's a good shift and and if one of the things that any of the good things that could have come out of COVID is an appreciation for flexible work life for being able to work from home not having to you know spend ridiculous amounts of time commuting and and but the the flexibility which is really important for women to maintain their research output and, and to be able to stay in this space and I, unfortunately I've seen a lot of my generation women not continue in science who I would have I thought would just be you know smashing it out of the ballpark but you know they chose not to because they they didn't want that stress of the of you know this type of field I would just say to younger generation you might come up against some hurdles and um, I, I, a lot of that is moving. It's moving in a better direction. Um, I think we're being more supportive for, um, you know, both parents um, to have more active roles in child rearing and, and all of that. But, you know, if just be tenacious, stick with it, stick with it. Don't, don't let it get you down. Don't, you know, if this is what you want, keep going for it because you you will make those doors open but you know you just need to have have a bit of a goal and 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 strive for it um and there are there are those that have done it and some amazing women out there that you know I greatly admire who paved you know put down a lot of those pathways for us to follow so 
Yeah, that's what I would say. (laughs) (laughs) No, thank you so much for adding it. I think it's really important for anyone who is, who is listening, you know, if you are wanting to be a mom, but you know, like you said, there's no perfect time to be able to do that. And I think there's, you know, it's always when you plan is when it doesn't go to plan. So why plan anyway? Absolutely. (laughs) Incredibly hard thing to plan. I think, Oh yes. I think what is a, there's a beautiful line from um, the Beatles song. Oh, actually it's just John Lennon, which is, um, life is what happens when you're busy making other plans. And Mm. I think it's just (laughs) sums that up perfectly. Yes, it very much does. So thank you so much for diving a little bit deeper into that because it's a very important thing to know as someone who is recently married and wants to be a mom one day, you know, that's always a conversation that me and my partner are having. And it's always like, why why are we even trying? If it happens, it happens. And Mm. so thank you very much for, for bringing that up. And thank you for being on the podcast. I feel like we have barely just scratched the surface with you. We're going to have to do a part two with you. um, Just happy, happy to do that anytime. Uh, Thank you. Happy to do that anytime. It's been fun. Thank you. Yes. Well, no, thank you for coming on. Can anyone follow you, follow you or um, your work? Or is there a social media for um, the RUCN Sharks? Like how can people follow along? Oh, it's a good question. Um, At the moment, uh, not not really me as an individual. I'm kind of not very good at that stuff. Um, Our projects do have... um, Facebook pages if you'd like to um, if people would like to follow that so um, the this the reshark project has a Facebook page and Instagram so please jump on have a look for that there's some super cute videos of really really Love gorgeous that. hatchlings that you know you can just watch over and over again there's no issue with that project manta Australia has a Facebook page we've got um uh, one of the projects I work on, um, which does include Elasma Brank stuff, but also more broadly is called Leaf to Reef, the biodiversity of Lady Elliot Island. And that is, um, and there's actually a YouTube docuseries that goes with that. Oh. So there's a, a little, some videos and there's one on walking sharks. Um, that's part of that, that I talk a bit more in. Um, and then we are about to launch our Spot the Leopard Shark Australia uh, meet um, socials and, and website, and that's one of my tasks that I've got to finish <laughs> putting together. But um, so there will be more coming online there. But, um, yeah, I'm not, as an individual, I'm not particularly active. It's sort of um, I find it hard to... As I said, I need some downtime. So I, I need, I, I draw a line in the sand somewhere. I'm not on Twitter. <laughs> I, I can't cope with no. too much um, sound bites of information. Yeah, brain full, too much. Yeah. No, that is okay. <laughs> we got to find a life balance somewhere and you found yours. Well, I'll make sure to link everything in the podcast description. So for anyone that's listening, wants to file, just look through the description. We'll link everything there for you but again thank you so much for being i'm also happy oh thanks kristen i'm happy if people want to email me um you know i'm I'm happy for people to contact me that way if if you have specific questions um you know and i'm always happy to sort of reach out and help um next generation coming through as i'm reaching this older period of life (laughs) (laughs) i love that well again um thank you so much for being this wealth of information and thank you all for listening today thank you